With that, let's open our Bibles to, uh, to Romans chapter 3, and we will continue in our study today through the book of Romans. And I will ask for your grace today as we go through uh, Romans. I'm fighting a cold and really not feeling so well, so give me some grace, that would be great. <laughs> Alright, Romans chapter 3. Now again, as you're making your way to the book of Romans, just remember Romans was written by the Apostle Paul. He wrote it on his third missionary journey. And he was in Corinth when, uh, when he wrote this. Corinth being a, a terribly sinful, sin-filled uh, community. He's burdened to go to Rome and uh, concerned that he may or may not make it there. He wanted to write them uh, just a, a, a note of uh, how ministry should be conducted and, uh, and you know, basic doctrines of the Christian faith. He wanted to make sure that they got it, and so he penned this book of Romans, probably Paul's masterpiece of all the things that Paul worked on, the book of Romans being just an incredible book. Now, what I want you guys to know about, and, and uh, well, let's read the text, and then we'll get into it. Romans chapter 3 is where we're at. Uh, we're not going to get very far today, but Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, What advantage, Paul's asking the question, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, he says, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that, your wor- that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. We'll stop there. Uh, Romans chapter 3 this is the first epistle in the Bible. You see, in the first epistle in the New Testament. And, and what I want you to understand is that the New Testament is divided into three categories, okay? As we study through the New Testament, just understand there's three categories to the New Testament. The first category are the Gospels, first four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. These are the teachings of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, uh, and, and these, this is the first section of the New Testament. The next category of the New Testament is the book of Acts. You guys will, will recall, if you've been here for any length of time, uh, we recently spent about, uh, 16, 17 months going through the book of Acts. And the book of Acts continues Christ's ministry through his apostles, uh, in the church. Um, the, uh, the author of the book of Acts, Luke, um, basically says there at the beginning of the book of Acts, hey, uh, in, in my former work, he's referring to the Gospel of Luke, I told you about all that Jesus Christ began both to do and to teach until he was taken up to heaven. And, and basically what he goes on to say is that Acts is the continuance of Christ's work on the earth, and it's, it's Jesus working on the earth through his apostles, through the establishing of the first church. This is the second division, uh, second category of the New Testament there, the book of Acts. The rest of the New Testament is the third uh, division of the New Testament, and that is, it's, it's comprised of the epistles. The epistles are concentrated, and, and their purpose is to uh, teach uh, the, the teachings of Jesus, 
uh, and to understand how his ministry moved and worked through the apostles and now how his ministry is to continue through the churches that will come. And so it's, it's written, these epistles, to churches that were being established in the first century church, first and second century church, but it also has direct application to us as well. See, collectively, we call the New Testament, these three divisions, the Gospels and the Book of Acts and all these epistles, we take the teachings of all these things, we put them together, and this is where Christian doctrine is founded. Okay? Now, If you're like most people, maybe if you're like me in my high school algebra class, you hear the word doctrine, it sounds too scholarly for you, and I just lost you. You glassed over, you're like, doctrine, good grief, I don't want to know about that. You know, talk to me about something else, you know, but don't talk to me about doctrine. Well, listen, when we talk about doctrine, it's really, really important, and you need to tune in. Here's here's why. Doctrine is what dictates the spiritual conduct of any church. And I don't know about your church experience. I'll just tell you about mine that I've had my experience with those churches whose doctrine is off. It's not scriptural. And when you go to a church that's doctrine is off, what you find is that the church is involved in things that really aren't going to change your life and really take you anywhere meaningful. What you find is that the things that the church is teaching aren't really relevant to the things that you're going through because their doctrine is off. And so the doctrine that we would concentrate on is so very important because, again, it dictates the spiritual conduct of the church. It dictates the teachings that emanate from the church. It dictates, ultimately, how we live our life. And so what we want to do as a body of believers, we want to take Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. We want to combine that teaching with Jesus' continuing work through the apostles in the book of Acts and have an understanding of how his teaching practically plays out in the body of Christ, what that looks like, practically applied. Then we want to read the epistles and further see how his teaching and how the practical application of his teaching in the first century now applies and is further articulated on through the epistles And then what we want to do in in doing all those is we want to apply it to our life today. We want to apply it to the church today. Jesus is teaching, he's working through the apostles, his working in and through and establishing the church helps us to see, okay, how should we then live? How should we as a church then operate? What should be the things that we major in? What should be the things that we minor in? Um, you know, when you come to Reliance Church, my hope is that you get to see the doctrine of the church. That you'll notice, first of all, well, they place a high value on the teaching of God's Word. That God's Word is taught chapter by chapter, verse by verse, that you come to church on Sunday, you're going to go through the Bible, that you're going to be exhorted to get plugged into a home Bible study, that anything meaningful in your life is only going to be is in accordance to how you know God's Word, and and not whether you mark your Bible, but whether your Bible marks you. That you understand what God's Word is, what it means, what it says, and most importantly, what we prayed today, what it says to you, and will you walk out these doors, will you be a doer of God's Word? And so again, the doctrine that we have established here at the church takes all of the, the doctrine that's applied in the New Testament and says, this is what we're going to be about. 
Secondly, our doctrine here at the church, I'm hoping that you're seeing that the fellowship is very important. The Bible says that we're not to neglect the gathering together of the saints. The, the Bible says that we're to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And so we, as part of a biblical doctrine, say we need to place a prominence on fellowship. This is not entertainment, by the way. This is saying, listen, if you're going to let somebody into your life, you're going to have to know them, right? And so what we, we just had the mother and other tea this last week. We had like 160 ladies out at this mother and other tea. And, and the beautiful thing taking place there was that excuse me, these women are getting to know one another. And as they get to know one another, what happens is they, they, you let people in when you're going through a trouble. The, the, the walls that you erect in your life, they come down. It's been said that life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Uh, and, and so as we as a body, through focusing on sound biblical doctrine, say fellowship has to be a part of it because that's biblical, what we're saying is, look, you need to get to know people and actually let them into your life so that the walls in your life can come down, that you can begin to do life together with other people. So that when you come to church, it's not just something that you check off on your Franken planner that you've done, but no, you're <coughs> actually getting to know people, letting them in, they are letting you in, and we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds, as the Bible says. Another doctrinal thing that's very important that we get from the full counsel of God's word as we read through it is the breaking of bread, the partaking of communion. This is, as I said in the introduction to baptism, this is something that the Lord has commanded that we should be all about. That, that we break bread together and we do it in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Jesus commanded that we should do this, that we should do it often. It's not something that we want to be just a regular thing that we do uh, as, as a, you know, that's just part of the services, our communion time. No, we want this to be meaningful time where it, we sit and we receive from God in the teaching of his word. And then at the end of the service, we respond to God as he's commanded. We keep that short account with God to where we can, we can uh, draw near to him, where we can confess our sins, where we can remember what he's done for us. This is why uh, the breaking of bread is so strategically important. And finally, one of the, 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 the fourth doctrinal priority that we place here in the church is on prayer. The Bible says that we're to pray without seeking. Uh, prayer is not having our will done in heaven, but it's having God's will done in our life on earth. And this is something as a body of believers that we need to be strongly about. And now we base all that on the teaching of God's word. Acts 2.42 tells us that the first church established by God focused on those four things. It says there that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, that's the teaching of God's word, in fellowship, that's the critical importance of letting people into your life, in the breaking of bread, the partaking of communion, remembering what Christ has done for us, and in prayers. And we see the result of them focusing on these four main points of doctrine in Acts 2.47 when it says that they were praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added daily to the church such as should be saved. Now again, the, the idea here isn't that we as a church, as a body of believers, that we come up with some sort of slick advertising campaign or we do some sort of you know, marketing outreach or strategy to grow our church and we make growing our church numerically the goal. No, what biblically we're supposed to do as far as having a healthy doctrine is concerned is that we're to focus on teaching God's word, on fellowship, on partaking of communion, on prayers. 
We do that, we grow up the body in terms of our relationship with the Lord and actually don't play church, but actually be the church. And then what happens is God naturally will grow the church. And the growth is just the natural outpouring of having a healthy environment where people are actually being transformed into the image of God. God, as a loving Father, wants His people to go to a place where they're going to be fed, where they're going to nourish, where they're going to grow. And the whole objective is to know Him. And so this happens in that kind of an environment. Now you're saying, okay, Ted, what on earth has this got to do with Romans chapter 3 that we just read? What I want you to understand as we're in Romans chapter 3 is that Paul is teaching doctrine here, okay? And, and it's, it's easy when we read this and we come to chapter 3 and he's like, what advantage ha- then has the Jew? What, what's, it, what's the benefit to being a Jew? And you could be sitting here and you're like, what on earth has that got to do with me? Why do I care? I'm not Jewish. You know, and what's, what, why does this even matter? It matters because all of this fits into a biblical understanding of what God's doing. And what we need to remember here as we're in chapter 3 is that Paul is building the case, trying to, to establish the foundational premise that, listen, God is sovereign, He has a saving work to do, and it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, that God's plan is that you would know Him and that you would surrender to His life. And so in chapter 1, he's talking to all of those people that would reject God, that would insist that there is no God. Uh, and, he's, and he's writing to the unrighteous, to the murderers, to the homosexuals, to the violent haters of God. And he's saying, listen, there is a God, and you will stand accountable to Him. There will come a day when you stand before Him. And, and, he, and he lays out the whole premise of where he's going there in chapter 1 by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Gentile. And, and so this is his proclamation in chapter 1. Now, that causes a problem for the Jews. And so in chapter 2, he turns his attention to them. And he says, now... All of you who've heard me say now in chapter 1 that those who oppose God, those who reject God, uh, those who, who, who are, are running from God, uh, those who are unrighteous basically, all of you are congratulating yourselves now who are self-righteous and you're saying we're glad we're not like them. Let me talk to you for a minute. And so he spends chapter 2 talking to all the people who would consider themselves to be self-righteous. I'm right with God. Thank you, God, that I'm not like all these other sinners. And Paul says, yeah, you got a problem too. You're going to stand before God yourself. And what are you going to stand before God in? What is, what is going to be your profession? What is going to be your right to stand before God? If you think you're going to stand before God based on your good works and you helped an old lady across the street and you helped with the Boy Scouts and you give to the United Way, you've got another thing coming. That's basically what Paul's saying. He's saying there is a righteous standard. And whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, that righteous standard is faith in Jesus Christ. And then we're, we're going there. Actually, next week we're going to be talking about uh, him just getting to, the, to, to that point to, to drive home. Look, our salvation is by grace through faith. And it's not of yourself. It's not of work. It's not that it's something that, that you can earn a right standing with God. This is something God has to do. And so now what happens is he comes to chapter 3. What Paul is doing, a good teacher does this. As he's teaching, he recognizes that the people sitting there have questions. 
And so what he does is he addresses those questions and he answers them. As I'm talking to you and I'm kind of going through the preamble and you're like, boy, Pastor Ted loves to hear himself talk. What on earth has all this got to do with what we just read? I recognize that. I say, hey, this is what you're thinking. Let me tell you why this is important, right? Hopefully I haven't lost you. And so this is what Paul's doing in chapter 3. He's saying, look, now right about now, I've been telling you all this and now what you're thinking is, well, then what's the point of being Jewish? Why? What's the advantage in that? Why, what's the benefit in that? Why does God, you know, give to the Jews all of, all of these commands and, and all of you know, the, the things that they got to do when really ultimately the Jews are going to be saved, the Gentiles are going to be saved? Why does that matter? Paul addresses that. He asks, he asks the question and he says in, in uh, verse 2, you know, he said, in verse 1, he says, um, what, uh, what is the profit of being a Jew? What's the profit of circumcision? Verse 2, he says, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. And you're asking yourself, okay, what oracles? What, what are the oracles of God? Good question. The oracles of God, basically, uh, is the... Um, <clears throat> I've been looking at my notes. Sorry about that. Oracles of God uh, is where uh, the, the, he's explaining to uh, to the uh, uh, the people what the word is, what the narrative, what the statement is. It's it's basically it's referring to the written word. It's referring to really the thirty nine books of the Old Testament. This is what Paul's talking about. He says to the Jews were committed the oracles of God. Uh, and and we need to understand that because the Jews were were so faithful to write down, to keep, and to to uh, to uh, keep such fastidious records of of the word that God gave to them, because they were so faithful in this, um, that you know this is the benefit to being a Jew. They were very faithful in what had God God had asked them to do. Now, to get a full appreciation from this, we have to understand how the Jews handled the Word of God. Basically, it worked like this. You had two scribes that had the responsibility, anytime the Word of God was recorded, was written down, two scribes had the responsibility to do this, to write it down. And so they would sit side by side, and the one scribe would write down uh, the the oracle of God, the, the words of God, and then the other scribe, would check his work to make sure that what the first one wrote was correct. And and they wouldn't write a word at a time or a sentence at a time or a book at a time. They would write one letter at a time. And so they they took God's word so seriously that this scribe would write a letter and he'd show it to this scribe and the scribe would say, yep, that's right. And then he would write the next letter and he'd show it to this guy and he'd say, yep, that's right. And they would go through this and, and, and in much more, anytime the name of God came up, they would go and take a bath before they'd write it. And then they'd, and then they'd write the name of God. Uh, and it, it got, I mean, they were so fastidious about this. Now, they wouldn't allow any erasures, any mistakes. Uh, I, I would be in big trouble. Uh, you know, no line outs, no, you know, whoops, delete, 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 whatever it is. Nothing to that. If you made a mistake, you had to throw it out and start over. And it's not like, you know, for instance, (coughs) the book of Isaiah. 
been called a mini Bible. There's 66 books in the book of uh, 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. So, so if you and and they're not writing, it's not like page one, page two. Oh, we screwed up page 32. Throw page 32 away. You need to rewrite that. No, the book of Isaiah is written on one scroll. So you're in chapter 66 on the last word, and you mess it up. You have to throw the whole thing away and start over. Now, here's the significance about this. Back, you know, several years ago, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and it was a really big deal. Because in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found one of the the scrolls of Isaiah. And the the scroll of Isaiah that they found was 600 years older than the, the, the... Next, you know, than the oldest version that they had at the time. So what they did is they took this version that they had, and they took this version that they had discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls there in Qumran, and they com- and they compared them to see if there were any significant changes over that 600 year period of time, because this is getting back very near to when the the Book of Isaiah was originally written, and there were no changes. It was exactly the same. And so the 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 the, the brilliant the, the the thing here is that Paul is saying, listen, it's, it's, there's many benefits to being a Jew. And when we get to chapter 9, he's going to go through a lot of other benefits that he'll talk about. But he says, look, there's many benefits to being a Jew, but chiefly what you have to understand is that the primary benefit is to them were committed the oracles of God. And the whole reason that you and I have these 39 books of the Old Testament that we can read through now and trust in their authenticity. And, and the naysayers would say, well, who wrote the Bible? See, man wrote the Bible. It's, it's you know, it's, it's man's word. Yeah, but it's a pretty amazing thing when you consider it's written over thousands of years, over several continents, and that there's no, there, that, that the word is the same, it's been preserved, and, and that there's, there's, there's nothing that contradicts. One word doesn't contradict the other. It fits together seamlessly. The whole idea that we have this New Testament now to, to read and to depend on. I was talking to a gal today, just before service. And we had talked last week. And, and God's doing an amazing work in this, in this woman's life. And it's, a, and it's an issue of faith. And she's dealing with, with stuff that she's been dealing with her entire life. It's the heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. And she just told me today, having no idea what, what we're going to be talking about, how the book of Isaiah ministered to her. And Paul would say, listen, what's the advantage of being a Jew? Because the Jew was entrusted with writing down and keeping the word of God. Here's the point of application for you. Write it down, take a walk with it, because it's the only point of application you're going to get today. What has God committed to you? What does he want you to be faithful with? What is it? What is it that God has entrusted to you? See, Brent and I were talking about this this week. We were just talking about, you know, when you look back, <laughs> hindsight is a pretty cool thing, you know? And you look back in hindsight and you see just how all of the pieces of the puzzle fit together. Just how, how everything weaves together and you see how immensely critical, seemingly little decisions were in your life today. Do you guys experience that? Have you ever taken that opportunity? Brenda and I were thinking about this, and we're, we're thinking, I think I told you a story about uh, Roger and Gene Souter. They're a couple that, that came out very instrumental in our lives years ago. 
They were planning a church in Temecula. They had no money. They decided to do an outreach. Their outreach campaign was the Yellow Pages in a phone book. And they just went through and started calling people to invite them to come to their little church of 25 people. And we were the ones, one of the ones that got a call. And we decided, yeah, we could use a little church right now in our lives, not walking with the Lord, not being surrendered to Him at that season of our lives. Uh, we haven't got enough time to, or do I have enough courage to tell you all about that? And so we decided we'd go to church. And so we started going to church. And this guy and his wife, who sold everything, moved out from North Carolina to plant this little church and pulled it all on the line. Not only were they ministering to us, but they decided that they were going to minister to us throughout, throughout the week. And, and basically, they would come over to our house every week and they would lead us in Bible study. And you got to know it wasn't convenient for them. I mean, it's, it, you, they come over to our house, listen to our screaming kids and have to do, you know, whatever it is. The guy's trying to plant a church. He's got a lot of things to do. The last thing on his list is, oh, i got to go over to Leavenworth's house and teach that knucklehead the Word of God. And yet he did. And he came over and he ministered to us and he was faithful to, to just teach us the Word. And because of their faithfulness, Roger and Jean, my wife and I would commit our lives to Christ. And in committing our lives to Christ, we would then raise our children to know the Lord and to commit their lives to Christ. And I think, and, and what, if, what if Roger hadn't been faithful to do that? What if the night in question, he's like, you know, gosh, that's, uh, that's, that's when the repeat of uh, you know, the A-team is on, man. I want to watch that. I love that show, you know, or Get Smart reruns are on there, whatever it is. You know, what if that had been more important to Roger? You know, I wouldn't know the Lord. I wouldn't have the hope of eternal life. My wife wouldn't know the Lord. My children wouldn't have been raised to know the Lord. Now, I think about the things that God did in our life through that. Not only wouldn't we have known the Lord or let our kids know the Lord, we, we never would have started Revival Christian Fellowship. We never would have started Reliance Church. The six churches that we've planted from those works would not have been planted. I mean, you start taking a walk with what these little, itty-bitty, seemingly insignificant decisions are, and you realize God's got a call. He's got a plan. He's entrusted to you and to me that we would be faithful. What has God entrusted to you? What is it? Is it your kids? Your wife, your job, that neighbor next door that drives you absolutely crazy. What is it that God's entrusted to you that he wants you to be faithful to do? You see, in verse 2 there, he says, Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. That word committed, literally, means entrusted. It's entrusted. God has a trust that he's given to you and that he's given to me. Now, when we talk about things that have been entrusted to us, I, I want to, uh, to share with you guys something that's been entrusted to us as a leadership. And, and I'm sharing you with this because it's a big deal and, and we, we need your prayers. Um, the idea about doctrine, I spent a long time saying, hey, look, we, doctrine's important because it's, it's important with how we run the church. The significance of that is that the church, it's not an organization, it's not a building. I say on the website, it's not about a man, a Sunday, an organization. It's about a family of believers. The church is you. The church is me. Together, we are the church. And God in the church, he's established how things should be run. And so he raises up leaders and he raises up those people that are going to be 
that he can trust with this ministry. That means that when we gather together as a church, and it's so much more than what happens on Sunday, but as we gather together as a church, we have to be faithful to the trust that God has placed, entrusted us with. Which means we need to be faithful that, you know, if somebody's going to be with your kids, we need to know who they are. We need to do a background check on them. We need to make sure that these people are reliable, that you can come and receive the Word of God knowing full well that we are doing everything we can to minister to your children. That we've, we've invested to have the right people there. That we're, we're paying a gal that's got a resume longer than my arm uh, of children's ministry to, to put together something that's very comprehensive and is not babysitting or child care. Those kids are learning the word of God. You need to know that, that, that that's, we believe and have responded to, hey Lord, this is a trust you've entrusted to us. Moreover, we need to make sure that every penny that's given is, is given, or that is managed with full integrity. That, that it is the widow's might that's been placed in the giving boxes. That every penny belongs to God. We will stand before Him and give an account for how we've spent His money. And so we need to handle that very carefully. And one of the things that's come up is, has to do with this building. God has been faithful. He's provided us this building. And as you guys know, well know, we're, we, we've outgrown it. Uh, you know, we're at three services now and, and, you know, it just continues to grow. We've gone from a church of four people to, to several hundred people and, and God is just continuing to move and work. Again, the church isn't about a building, but you've got to have a place to meet. Well, what, what happened was the guy who owns this building was taking our rent checks and he wasn't paying his mortgage. And so the building went back to the bank. And we get, a, we get contacted from the bank who say, hey, we now own your building, and what are your intentions? We're like, well, our intentions are to pay our lease as we've continued to pay our lease and, and to have a home here. Can't we please get, all just get along? You know. <laughs> Meanwhile, the guy who owned the building takes off with our $17,000 deposit. You know, that's money gone. And so we're like, you know, God... What is going on here? So we pray and we work it out with the bank and we, we come up with an agreement, a month-to-month lease with the bank while they're trying to sell the building. And then we notice they're not depositing our checks that we're writing to them. And then we get a notice from the bank, a three-day notice to get out of the building. And we're like, Lord, what are we going to do? So we lawyer up and figure out what the heck are we going to do here and find out our rights. And that's not exactly, you know, kosher. You can't give them three-day notice. There's, there's a process. Then we get a letter from them saying, hey, look, no, we've sold the building. And you work out a lease with the new guy and everything will be cool. So we get the new guy. We're talking with him. We're trying to work it out. New guy gives us a lease. We go over the lease. And, if, and the lease is a train wreck. They, they want us to sign a, a two-year lease to stay here. If we stay here for two years, we will have chairs out on the road out there. I mean, what the heck? Not only that, and that's not the worst part of it. The worst part of it is if we sign this lease, it's a matter of, you know, if they enforce all the clauses that they have in the lease, we can't function as a church. They're limiting our parking. They're limiting the hours. We can use the building. And then It's crazy. You pay for a building, and then they say you can't use it on, during these times. They're saying we can't use amplification. All these things that if they enforce in the lease, we can't operate as, as, as a church here. So we're like, Lord, this is, this is difficult. Well, in the midst of all this, and this is so God, uh, we get a call. There's a church in town. They say, hey, we want to lease you our building. It's a gorgeous place. We signed that lease last week. So, where is it? What church is it? Well, I can't tell you. And here's the prayer. Here's part of the prayer part. 
This particular church takes a vote. It's a congregational rule church. So they are voting tonight on whether or not they're going to uh, approve this lease that we've signed. They think it's a slam dunk. The people we're talking to, they're saying it's a done deal. Uh, we're praying. God, if this is your will, open this door. God, if this is not your will, shut this door. We do not want to engineer anything. Either God's in it or he's not. And if he's not, we do not want to open that door. So God, you, you make your will abundantly clear. We'll let you know next week what happened. The meeting's tonight. Please pray tonight. Here's the wrinkle. Pray. Um, we go back to the, the, who will be the new owner of this building. We say, okay, hey, listen, not only is the lease he gave us a train wreck, but we've signed another lease and you know, that's, that's all being taken care of. But it's going to be six, eight months before we can actually move over there. We, we actually would like to stay six, eight months. You just bought the building. You don't want a vacant building, and we're sure of it. Give us a six or eight-month lease. They said, look, you sign our lease or you get out in two weeks. That's what they said to us. And we went back to the, 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 the church that we signed the, the other lease with. They're like, we'll work with you. The facility's big enough that you know, if they throw you out on the street, you know, we'll provide you with a place. We'll do something. We'll work it out. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're a well-armed church, so we're going to found... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> God, I'm kidding. I'm not David Koresh or Waco or anything like that. Um, we can edit that out of the tape, I hope. Anyway, here, here's the whole point. And, and I, got, I got pages of notes we're not even going to get to, so we'll come back next week. We'll pick it up uh, where we left off. But, but I want to close on this point. God has entrusted to every single one of us, whether it's the church leadership, whether it's us individually, whether it's you, whatever the capacity is, God has entrusted to you and to me something that He's called us to be faithful to. And we can look at how these Jews were faithful to keep the oracles of God. Because they were faithful to keep the oracles of God, I can have a girl in our church service come in 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 tears and say, I'm dealing with the most incredible trial of my life. And God met me and ministered to me through the book of Isaiah. And I can identify with that because God met me and ministered to me at a very dark point in my life through the book of Isaiah. You have no idea what the decisions that you're making and how you respond to the things in your life matter to God. They matter. Several weeks ago, I, I taught a message about who are we? What, who are we as a church? And we make that CD available for people about, you know, what, what's our philosophy of ministry? Where are we coming from? And you'll recall in that, as we, as we went through that study, we just talked about how it asks a rhetorical question, who has despised the days of small things? And the answer is that often we do. That the small, we look past the small things because we want to get on to the big things. And God says, no, as you're faithful in little, I'll make you faithful in much. And I just challenge you with that today as we close. What is it that God's called us to be faithful in? Take a walk with that this week. Write it down. Ask God to to, to show you. Lord, what have you entrusted to me? And am I being faithful with it?